The following is a production of Natural Bliss Podcast for a better quality of life. Hi, welcome to It's Your Life. I'm your host, Joyce Wheeler. Today is Tuesday, May 14th, and I'm here with Kit Brooks, who started out as a happy, dimple-faced kid who did great in school, but by the age of eight years old, he was having suicidal thoughts. Years of prescription and attempts at self-medicating finally proved futile, and he went looking for another way. After living in this depressed state for two decades, he finally found a way out. Now he spends his days helping others overcome the things in their own life so that they can live the life they desire. Kip is a master practitioner and trainer of neuro-linguistic programming. He also holds certifications and timeline techniques, neuroscience, emotional freedom therapy, and healing touch. He, he and his wife co-founded Brooks Empowerment Academy, where they help clients wipe out emotional baggage and mental blocks, such as depression, PTSD, and phobias, so they can live a life of empowerment. They also train coaches in the same techniques they use themselves and helping their clients achieve the impossible. Kip, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Joyce. So, Kip, let's go back to your your childhood. Could you just give us a uh, slight background of what led to your depression at eight years old? Because that's a really young age to be depressed and suicidal. Yeah. Um, you know, my, um, my parents, both, they had their own business that they own, you know, a small little um, truck stop type thing. And if you think Waffle House, but not as classy, <laughs> in a you know, small town. And um, uh, quite frankly, my um, my dad just wasn't the type. He wasn't really the parenting type. And um, he had kids from multiple women, and, you know, we hardly ever saw them. And then with my mom, he had... Um, Myself, my brother, and my sister, and I don't know. He just um, he was more focused on work and then his, um, his party habits, and he was a heavy drinker, high functioning alcoholic. I never saw him miss work or anything else, but I'd say it was it seemed like there was a whole lot of avoidance to be around the uh, the family unit. And uh, the only time he did come in was just the discipline, and he was physical disciplinary, and that was it. Half the time, you know, he'd come in us or, or you know much worse sometimes and we wouldn't even know what we had done like he would not say a word he would just come in like a SWAT team handle it and leave and Jeez. you know sometimes I, I remember one case where for me it was three days after what I had done that he uh, believed deserved the discipline so it's like you know I, I would constantly have to backtrack and figure out you know become a detective on what in the world did I do that <laughs> created this and my mom was a complete opposite. She never drank. She didn't smoke. You know, uh, didn't get into any drugs or anything. And uh, so she was trying to hold the business together all the time. And you know, they were trying to build it. And it was a it was a failing business. And just a thinking ship. So she was always there as well. And so yeah, it was kind of um, Lord of the Flies type situation at home. And uh, you know, it was uh, so many times it was me and my baby sister there ourselves. I mean, the, the Business was basically like right across the street, uh, you know, not even half a block away, probably. But then, you know, to a kid, seven, eight years old, it, they weren't in the house, you know, they weren't there. 
had, uh, and then, like I say, there was just the um, extreme way that, <laughs> and the eccentric way that my father would discipline. So constantly just felt like I was walking on eggshells, you know, a lot of mm-hmm. like insecure feeling. Um, the home, the home environment was never somewhere I felt safe. And, um, so, you know, just a lot of like paranoia, that type of feeling around a lot of anxiety. Uh, they just started to wear and tear on me because, you know, I was too young to understand what in the world was going on. Um, and I didn't feel like at the time necessarily there was like a, an abusive environment by any means. It was just, it was life. But, um, you know, I had a whole lot of emotional stuff going on that I had no clue how to deal with. Um, and I, you know, didn't realize that it was coming from this, um, uh, you know, lack of stability in the, in the home front. So when you said your mom was totally the opposite, then as far as disciplining you, she wasn't physical. No, um, she would. Uh, she was the lecturer of the group. <laughs> um, had people come up, you know, uh, quite often at presentations and stuff. And I, where'd you get the gift of gab? Like, it must have come from my mom because she would talk me to death <laughs> every time. Uh, you know, uh, and it actually it had some effects on me as well, honestly, because I felt like I was just constantly being reminded of every little uh, mistake I'd ever made. And then, like I say, a couple of days later, or sometimes later that day dad would come in and discipline me as well. So I always felt like I was being double punched. Right. There was never like the united front um, to where they both came up with a plan and did it. They both had their own way. They didn't agree with the other one. So they just both implemented their own strategy. But, uh, but yeah, she did get physical one time. She denies it to this day. <laughs> um, but I, I was actually the kid that was able to make her snap one time, and she uh, she actually spanked me with a wooden brush. Didn't feel anything. I mean, she put nothing on it. It was obvious to me at the time that she was just there out of frustration, didn't know what else to do. And, um, uh, and I was just looking for attention. And like I say, compared to my dad, it was a joke. I think my kid sister would have hit me harder. Who <laughs> was? <laughs> You know, um, maybe a year old, two years old at the time. So uh, it didn't really count. But uh, for a little while, I, I actually kind of held that title. Like I was the one that pushed her over the edge. <laughs> but uh, but no, yeah. Uh, my mom was the closest thing to uh, like a, a role model and a, a symbol of like a, you know a good person and, uh, and a lot of courageousness. I saw come from her. She was very strong woman even though they, they were um they were married and you know he he died before they ever got to the point of divorce or anything but even the just the way their relationship was the whole time they were together it was in my mind it was like she was a, a single mom um and i say running a business that was open 24 hours a day so she was always there at work but yeah she um had a much different way of approaching things try to bring us um, you know, culture, she pushed education and, you know, even self-education completely. Yeah, everything was completely opposite from my dad. My dad was the one teaching us how to fight and fight dirty, eye gouge, stuff like that. Like he just, he grew up on the streets and never outgrew that mentality. So do you, do you think that um, your mom agreed with the way your dad was handling you, you, you guys, your children? I know now uh, she did not, um, but honestly, at the time, you know, I was a I was a kid, and um, and at that time, I remember having several several different you know scenarios where I would have the thought running in my mind that like she just knew, um, 
even times she wasn't anywhere around, she has to know. Like, could, um, because I would link it in my mind to, you know, with my teachers and other, um, adults, you know, things I've heard them say of, um, you know, parents are united front, you know, mom and your dad communicate and they do this. And they, you know, they're always together and they're always working together to provide you guys with a, you know, great life or whatever. And, you know, just kind of general speeches made in the school auditorium or something about, about family life. So it was always assumed in my mind at that age that um, they communicated about everything. As I got older, much more uh, mature and wise to the situation, I started realizing that, yeah, there was no communication. Any communication in my household was just screaming um, at each other. But like I said, by the time I came to that, it was, I was close or, well, probably well into adult years or at least um, in the early phases of that. But so, yeah, at that time, when I was making my decisions about the way life is and you know, coming up with my belief system and all of that um, at those you know, young, impressionable years, I assumed she knew all of it. So for quite a while, actually growing up, I never felt like my mom and I actually had much of a relationship because I didn't feel like I could count on her then because I thought she was on quote-unquote his side. So it just became a, uh, a game of me trying to fit in for safety. Like I always felt kind of like I was behind in enemy lines a little bit. A feeling of not fitting in, not being wanted type thing. Uh, so like more of a hindrance than, than anything because of, let's say, the, um, the lack of presence from my parents. I always felt like their job came first. And then I would hear them complain about the job, how much they hate it, how much stress it caused. And I'm like, wow, they're taking that over me, even though it makes them miserable. So then it started taking that on as to a self, um, Self-fulfilling prophecy, but you know what's that? Uh, what's that say about me if they'd still rather go to this place that is causing them so much stress and uh, emotional and mental anguish? You know, that type of thing so it started really creating a hot mess in my head, so to speak. When we spoke, you had said that you, your dad was very physical. It wasn't just spankings. You had mentioned him punching. You mentioned him kicking. Now, did he ever hit your father? I mean, hit your mother? I'm sorry. No, um, yeah, there's, uh, I almost said not that I ever saw, but yeah, I know there's actually no way. He actually, um, it's funny, like I don't have a single memory of them ever getting along. I only have memories of them like yelling at each other. However, there was, I don't know, there's just this knowing, like, you just didn't mess with mom. He would, he would let you know, he's like, no matter what, he's like, you want to cut somebody, you cut me. You want to get mad at somebody, you get mad at me. He's like, but you do not cross her. He's like, if you do, I will end your life. Like, it was just that. Like, he, in a lot of ways, uh, in his own twisted ways, was he um, really feel like he kind of worshipped her. Uh, and I think part of it was because um, she was so fearless. Uh, she wasn't afraid of him or anyone else. I don't agree with any of the ways he treated her, things I saw you know, um, growing up. But say, looking at it kind of from the outside, there was, was always that like he would always kind of pull us aside and just let us know like mom comes first you know she's the queen she she's the um um you know, just sort of sacred being of the household um so that was part of it too like he would say these things but then i would see how they got along and i would see how he treated it to thank god but there was always this constant confusion of not knowing what was actually real um but uh but no, he yeah, never 
physically harmed her. I actually saw him walk away from her quite a bit uh, in heated moments. I'm guessing it was partially because of that, so it didn't go to a point. But yeah, lots of heated yelling, screaming, heated discussions, um, but nothing like that. You had said at eight years old that you were feeling suicidal. Did your did your mom or your brother or sister, did anybody in the family recognize the fact that there was something wrong with you emotionally? Not really. Um, it was written off as, um, you know, I became very withdrawn. Like I've always been an introvert, more of a, you know, more of a creative type of personality. And, or that's at least how I was raised. But say my house I was always afraid to speak up um, because like I say, I would never knew when like a, a jab or something was coming from my dad. So I was always afraid to kind of cross that line and say something wrong. So I would just learn not to say anything. And then um, when I got to that point to where I just didn't want to be around anymore and more and more withdrawn, everybody just kept labeling, labeling me as shy. Um, and so then I started kind of living into that. But um, yeah, look back, there were so many times, like I was actually quite, uh, quite outspoken, outgoing, um, extroverted. Just uh, I was taught how to, <laughs> I was given this label of shy and taught how to live into it, and all it was is you know, I was just withdrawn and depressed. But say my um, parents never really noticed my because my my dad was always uh, on his way to drunk or being drunk already, um, and say rarely ever around. Um, and when he was, he was passed out on the living room floor or something. My um, my mom was she was just so focused on work, and then. By that time, you know, my kid sister had come into the picture. She's about seven and a half years younger than me. So there was a lot of distraction there. The, uh, the little bit that my mom was around most of her attention, obviously, had to go towards taking care of the baby. And, you know, I don't think she ever really just picked up on it. Mom was very wise, very um, very intelligent woman. And I could always sense that there was some guilt somewhere with us. And what I assume it comes from is just, uh, and from conversations she and I've had, uh, since then, always the guilt of her not being around more, not being present, not being who she felt like she should be for us. Yeah, I don't think she ever picked up on it. Definitely not to the point where she thought it was something major. A couple of years later, like as I got closer to teenage years, they start picking up on it um, and obviously thinking things were wrong. But you know, like it happens so often with so many other kids, they just try to punish it out of me or something, thinking it was just a poor behavior, uh, bad attitude type thing. And my uh, my brother was he's about four and a half years older than me. He didn't he didn't notice anything then, but being that much older, he was outside of the home a whole lot. You know, he uh, he actually worked at my parents' business a little bit, and then was hanging out with friends, things like that. So I say by that age, we were they would have me, which is so much good sense of leaving eight nine year old home alone with the baby and. Let the uh, the more responsible one, the 12, 13 year old, let him out of the house. So, and when in fact he should have been there babysitting both of us if they were going to pick a kid to babysit. But so, yeah, he wasn't around much because they, they would use us quite often to as you know, labor at the business because they couldn't afford uh, employees. So we were you know, cheap, easy labor to get a hold of. And, and we had a phenomenal work ethic for sure. So, um, so yeah, there wasn't a lot of our uh, just family dynamic revolved around this thinking shift that was their business at the time. Did you actually ever attempt to commit suicide? Um, when I was 13, I, I thought I did. <laughs> uh, 12 or 13, I guess 12, actually. Um, 
I actually have a scar on my wrist from a steel. I uh, kind of stabbed myself in the wrist. It uh, yeah, obviously did not work. I did as I got much older, like uh, late teenage years, when I started drinking heavy and taking various pills and things. I overdosed a couple of times. Accidentally, uh, it wasn't necessarily my my intention. It was. I won't say it's accidentally, but I won't say it was necessarily uh, intentionally. Like it consciously wasn't. Like that wasn't the goal I set that night, but. I knew what I was doing to myself, and I was just like, I, I got to get out of here. The reason I never did earlier than that was actually because of my younger sister. The uh, the beauty about feeling that way at the age I did, like I was convinced that there was, uh, being so convinced that it was something wrong with me as far as like why my life was the way it was and not being wanted by anyone or any, you know, any of that stuff. I, uh, I actually, like by the age of nine or 10, I, began to reject any idea of a higher power, you know, God, universe, spirit, any of that. But um, not rejecting that it, that a higher power existed at that time. Uh, that was later in teenagers. But at that age, like around 10 or so, I began rejecting the idea that it was unconditional love and loved everybody and all of that. I was like, there's no way. I couldn't be in a position out of a loving being. I'm like, this is a punishment. And I, that triggered into this idea that I was like, okay, my brother doesn't live this life. He's actually out having fun and, you know, my parents are spending time with him. I'm left here and my sister's left here uh, at home. So in my head, I was like, okay, if I'm not here, then all this stuff gets dumped on her. And she was the one person I adored in the world, and actually the only person at that time that I felt like truly loved me. So I'm like, I can't do that. I can't take myself out of the picture and not be here to protect her. So I just promised, uh, like, kind of, I remember sending her one day, and she's a toddler. She had no idea really what was going on. But I remember just telling her, I was like, I promise I'll, I'll be around. Um, until you're at least strong enough to where I know you, know you can take care of yourself and not need me. Because as I got older, I was I was torn between my uh, this innate need and desire to protect her, and also the idea that I'm a terrible influence for her to have in her life. Because you know my own parents don't want me. Why? How can I be any good for anybody else? Type thing. So there was that sway back and forth. So like say around 12 or 13, it just kind of reached a low point. And then at age 14, I actually had planned it out and, and had a gun and the whole nine yards had gone to a particular spot I had picked out and was ready to do it. Actually, had a finger on the trigger and everything. And then something in me kind of quit. And I got very angry. And I was just angry that I felt that way, but more so, I was, there was just all these, all this dialogue in my head. I was like, no one should ever feel this way, especially a kid. I was like, not a bad kid and like uh, have so much love for everybody and just want to see people happy like how in the heck am i stuck feeling this way and why isn't anyone listening and um, so then i kind of popped out of that and, and started thinking about my sister and numerous other people and then it kind of pulled myself out and i was like i don't know if i'll ever be able to get out of this to where to the point where i feel happy so what actually happened that somebody realized or you realized that there was an issue and that you needed some kind of help. When did that happen? The first real glimpse of, well, I, I had actually, uh, my dad died when I was 15 and a couple of months later, my mom, you know, she was in mourning and just the whole being alone with three kids thing. Uh, she moved on 
pretty quick or try to pretend like she did. And so if within six months she was dating, um, maybe even engaged to this other guy who I label as my stepdad now, but they never actually got married. But uh, I was at work. I was working at this restaurant at night and I was having these visions, like hallucinations and things. Um, of various things around my dad, like funeral scenes, but it wasn't the actual funeral. It was a totally different scene, and all was stopped. And and in those visions, I would have these beliefs that I was at I was at cause for his death because actually his last words to me and my last words to him were spoken in anger. And um, and I remember I broke down, walked out to the um, hostess stand at the restaurant, and grabbed the phone from the hostess stand and called my mom. I was like, I need some help. I need to. I need to see a therapist or, you know, it's like, uh, you know, psychologist, someone. And I don't remember what she said, but um, it was just kind of like, you know, we'll talk about it later. Um, the way my mom was raised, but you don't talk about things to outsiders, you know, quote unquote, anyone outside the home. You just sweep it under the rug and act like everything's all good. And then my, uh, my stepdad got on the phone afterwards and he told me, um, suck it up, be a man, uh, not quite that politely. And then he hung up on me. So I just, again, it was like, okay, that's the man in her life. Here we are again, like in my head. I'm like, she's right there. They had this conversation before he had it with me type thing. And so I just disconnected. And I was like, okay, I don't have anybody. I'm in this on my own. In my, I think my 10th grade year or 11th grade year, I had a high school teacher um, pull me aside and actually was the first person to believe in me and see me separate from my transcripts. And he tried to get me in an apprenticeship program. And he's like, you know, I see something in you and I'm going to fight to get you in it. And, uh, and that's where it gave me a little bit of hope, but he ended up dying later on. And I, um, I didn't get to go through the apprenticeship program because I was too young and I had to get my mom to sign off on it. And she didn't believe it was legit. So, um, I didn't get to go in on it. So then I actually sank a little lower for a while because I felt like I let him down, made an embarrassment of him. And then we never even got to talk about it before he, um, before he passed away. And then the following, actually, I repeated my 12th grade year. That's a whole other story. Uh, for financial reasons, my mom asked me to repeat 12th grade. I was actually going to drop out. And she asked me to stay through my senior year and fail intentionally to repeat my senior year so she could get another year of Social Security uh, income from my dad passing away. Oh. And so then, I and then uh, like two or three months later, I stumbled across one of the checks and saw it was only like a few hundred bucks. So then, like... In that moment, I was like, okay, that's all I'm worth. And um, so for a long time, I never made more than that check was ever uh, for years, actually. And once I learned the psychology behind everything, I was like, oh, God, that's really profound. And I was able to release that belief and move on. But yeah, luckily that it's funny how you know the universe works, whether people believe in higher powers or whatever. It's just funny how you know, things just always seem to fall into place, even though sometimes they totally seem like they're falling apart. Because uh, I repeated that my senior year, and you know, the principal didn't want me there. Anybody like, yeah, he actually called us and was trying to keep me off the property. We had to fight to allow me to repeat. Um, he wanted me out of school. And so I'm fighting to go back to a place I don't want to be at, but I'm just trying to prove my worth to my parents, to my mom, one last uh, way to get accepted or whatever. And, and lo and behold, I meet this, this teacher, uh, Coach Calderon. I think it was his first or second year as a teacher, but it was his first year at my school. And he um, you know, <laughs> didn't look like he was three weeks older than us, much less old enough to be teaching a class. And honestly, I did, you know, he was a teacher, so I didn't have much respect or need for him in my mind. And I didn't do anything the first semester. I saw a lot of reason in trying. 
because in my mind, I'm like, as soon as the school year's over, I'm of no use to my family. I'm I'm done. I'm out. And, uh, and that was my plan. So for you know, for the longest time, the only goal I ever set in my life was to end my life. Well, then roll into the second semester, and that was actually the only credit I needed to uh, to graduate with the um, second semester of this world history class. And Coach Calderon held me after class one day, and I was like, all right, here we go. You know, it's going to be the usual thing of, you know, such a screw-up and all this. And instead, he slaps his progress report on the desk in front of me with my um, transcripts. And he's like, I, yeah, I don't know anything about you. He's like, I don't know what you have going on at home. He's like, I, uh, he's like, I don't know anything, really. He's like, but one thing I do know about you is this. And he's, you know, pointing and tapping on the paperwork stacked on the desk there, the transcripts and everything. He said, this is not who you are. And he's like, I'm not going to allow you to accept this from yourself anymore. He's like, because you're way better than this. He's like, and I know you are, and I'm going to make you believe it. And that was it. It was like a 60-second conversation. I didn't say a word back because I was really just dumbfounded. Uh, no one had ever said this before. Um, Mr. Taylor, uh, the previous teacher that passed away, no one had ever really shown any belief in me, you know, in the in the previous you know, six years or so. And so it just kind of planted a seed. It's in NLP, we call it a pattern interrupt. And so it was the seed. Interrupted the pattern right in my head, planted a little seed, and then that was it. And let me go. And he really went above and beyond to make sure, um, like he made it, made it a challenge on me, um, but he went above and beyond to make sure that I graduated. That was his goal for me. And, and without me realizing it, so he it broke my state, interrupted my pattern, planted a little seed, and it became this desire to, um, to show him he was right. You know, I still didn't have the belief in me, didn't have the desire to show it he was right for myself, but it was like, okay, someone believes in me, I'm going to, I'm going to prove it to Dan because there was always that need of you know, that external validation, that external love. And, you know, one of my favorite speakers, Les Brown, had said something, I'll probably nothing to quote, but he had said, it's like, if you can't believe in yourself, believe in someone else's belief in you until your belief shows up. And that's exactly what happened with Coach. I had picked out a date. You know, I knew uh, it was like on my, when I, my first birthday after getting out of, after graduating school, Social Security stops. And so I'm just going to end my life then, but there's no point going beyond that because that's all I'm worth. And that day came and went, and it was, I think it was like a year or two later before I realized, wait a minute, what happened? <laughs> Started trying to figure it out. I was like, I was dead set on it. There was nothing else in this world I wanted other than to not be in this world. And it just, like I say, just kind of went by. It was no like magical aha moment. It took a while because, you know, the real me was very deep inside. So it took a while for that to really um, take root and sprout. And it still took me, you know, a couple of years past that, uh, several years actually, to really begin to take hold of that belief of being worthy and, and want to do something better than what I'd been doing. You know, it was a, it was a gradual growth, uh, but, it, but it worked. We'll be right back with Joyce Wheeler and It's Your Life. your heavenly body with heavenly body skincare products heavenly body products are created to feed and nourish the skin they formulate their products in small batches for both quality and freshness heavenly bodies products are cruelty free 
contain certified organic ingredients, and are cost-effective. To bring out the heavenly body in you, visit their website at hborganicskincare.com. We're back with Joyce Wheeler, and it's your life. Did you realize or did somebody else realize that you had a problem and said, hey, look, you need to address this. You need to do something about this. You need to go talk to somebody. You need to get on meds. You know, the the, the normal things that people would say. At what point in time did that happen and how did that happen? Um, There were little glimpses of it here and there. Like I say, I had had that one scenario where I I called home trying to get help. And actually, even before that, I had, um, even before my dad had passed away, I would, I would hang out with this high school uh, guidance counselor. His name was Charlie Robinson, and just the, one of the sweetest people I'd ever met. And he was not my counselor. I won't say who my counselor was <laughs> to protect her, but she did not seem to have much love or desire for her job. But I, her office was right next to this guy, Mitchell Robinson, and I would just hear how he interacted with the students that he works with. And one of my friends was actually uh, you know, reported to Mr. Robinson. So I had talked to him and uh, I was like, the next time you're going in there, I was like, can you introduce me? And he, you know, like it was some big CEO or celebrity or something that a friend of mine had. Like, because I was, at that point, it was funny. Like I broke a lot of rules, got in a lot of trouble, but at the same time, there were areas where I was just terrified to make a move. And uh, because of the, repercussions uh, that I was convinced would come away. And like I said, the way I was raised is you don't talk to anyone about your problems, especially if there's stuff going on in that home life. What happens in the house stays in the house. I think. So there was this uh, fear of what if I go and talk to him? Because I talked to different school admin people before and, you know, even teachers. And then they would notify my parents and, you know, my dad would at least the fury um at least the cracking for uh for that type of stuff because he you know was trying to keep up an image or whatever so i learned not to trust parents or you know really any authority figure and so when i talked to uh, my friend that worked with you know mr robinson whenever he had issues i was finding out you know you trustworthy does he talk to your parents you know whatever and he's like no actually he's like he has a private group mastermind type thing like i don't know what he called it but uh, now looking back it was like a mastermind group coaching type thing that uh, mr robinson had set up and he's like we talk about our drug habits we talk about drinking like sex we talk about everything in there and there's no judgment and you know he just kind of holds the space and lets it let it out and then tries to teach a little something and that's it and he set it up on his own it wasn't something from the school it was what mr robinson saw as needed <laughs> so i got my friend to take me in there introduce me and from that day on i think i hung out with mr robinson probably three or four days out of the week here and there and you know he uh he was limited what he was allowed to do and say because of the rules of the school system but most of the time it just um he just provided a safe space and he would um sometimes say things off the record that you know he knew um he i think he could tell pretty quick how much his time meant to me and like how loyal I was, I, you know, I would have taken a bullet for that man because he was the only one listening. And so sometimes he would 
tell me different things and um, about what he felt like I needed or, you know, and it kept just, again, planting that seed of there are options. There's ways to get help. Even if, you know, you're not able to get to them right now, but like as you get older, you know, whatever, um, have your own income and things. It's like you can start taking control and seek out these methods. And it's like, you know, there's an option. So, so there was a lot of glimpses with him. Then after, Sometimes I just I'm like yeah, late high school and shortly after high school, I started self-medicating. But then I was constantly looking for you know what's another option. And even my dad, as closed off as he was, you know, I briefly spoke about this the other day. He he would go and see this Native American medicine man who was also a chiropractor, but he was an alternative medicine guru, you know, um, all natural and everything. And my dad would go see him for some for. Some back injury he had had that he had had a few discs fused together and all these doctors told him that oh you just got to live with the pain but he would go and see this chief two trees and chief would take care of him in a matter of minutes and he was feeling great and so for that moment inside chief's office he was you know you see this different side of my dad and and then he would come back in the real world and forget all that stuff and go back to you know stressing about work and drinking himself to death and eating garbage all the time and um, just being this angry individual. But for those few minutes he was with Chief, I would see something different. And again, it just kind of planted to see that, okay, there's there's other ways and it's not necessarily coming from a doctor's office. And because uh, I was like, this dude can make my dad respect him the way he did and just be quiet and actually listen. Holy crap, there's something to this. So it was enough to kind of fire me up. And finally, my um, in my... 20s, I started seeking out alternative methods and uh, like hypnotherapists and some other things because, like I say, doctors and psychologists, I just wasn't getting anywhere. I was just getting put on more and more meds, which were in turn making me feel worse over the long haul. At one point, weren't you on like three different meds, one for bipolar, an antidepressant, and yeah. there, there was something else you said you were on? Yeah, I, um, I remember the whole journey started on Lexapro and then, you know, went through like Paxil and Prozac and all this other stuff. but Finally, after I've been back so many times, they, um, instead of changing the prescription, they would just enhance it. And then it got to the point where they're like, okay, well, now, you know, we're going to give you the Xanax for anxiety. And then you just keep on whatever depression and a depressant I was on. And then they added a bipolar med. And uh, it's a nice little kicker. And they're like, oh, that'll really do it. <laughs> and all right. So they're telling me, this is going to fit. This is going to be it. Like, okay. And then I was on it for a while. And then I'm saying the beginning as the dose started working you know, like two or three weeks in as it gets in your system i noticed a little bit of a pickup but then um then it would plateau and then then over the course of weeks like i like see start feeling worse and just in the sense of like i wouldn't drop it's just that um i never felt good and i ended up talking to this uh happened to run into actually someone who, who grew up with Chief Tree. just ironically, he's from Houston, Texas. But I uh, I just happened to meet him again through the way the universe works. And through, uh, we were connected through like a third or fourth degree through people and then just this one chance meeting. I happened to run into him and started out. I was always fascinated. You and I connected on this. I was uh, always fascinated with just the tribal culture, but especially the Native American history and the culture and just the way they believe in treating people in the world and everything else. It always kind of spoke to me for whatever reason. So whenever I would hear about this, and one of one of the only like happy memories I remember ever having as a kid, way before my sister was born or anything else, 
because my parents took us to Cherokee, North Carolina, which is an Indian, a small you know, uh, Indian reservation. And they have a little bit of a town where they made it seem like the old town. And, you know, uh, it's like going back into the 1700s. And, um, and I just had a blaster. And I think that's part of what connected me to it. Cause I was probably four or five. And so I left there, you know, rocking the headband and the moccasins and everything else. <laughs> I was going to run away and join a tribe. So, so all these years later, you know, I'm in my early mid twenties and I get this chance to meet this gentleman named Standing Bear and took a co- couple of courses. He was teaching like healing touch and introduction to shamanism and then did a healing session with him. And most of the time we probably sat there for three hours just chit-chatting. And, and that's all I really wanted. Like he's such a brilliant guy. He knew so much about psychology and religion and spirituality, spirituality, but also um, epigenetics and you know, all these different things about human potential and all this stuff that I kind of believed was there, but I wasn't finding it. I, I didn't know what the label was, so I wasn't sure how to research it. And, um, and you know, we didn't have the internet or anything else really then. So he, he starts just opening my mind to all this. And, you know, the thing he told me about the meds, he said, well, yeah, he said, that's exactly what they do. He said, because they're not made to keep you up. He's like, they're made to keep you even. He said, so if you can never go down, you can never go up. And he started actually kind of teaching me the beauty of emotion, you know, and emotional responses. And he's like, you're just staying even. He's like, well, today, he's like, you know, you start on the meds day one. He's like, even without thinking, he's like, that feels pretty good. He's like, and it does for a few weeks. He's like, but we're creatures of growth. You know, he's like, we always want to get to the next level, no matter what. He's like, that's how we know we're alive. And he's like, so if you can never get up, He's like, what's even today? You know, he's like, what's even today might be might be yesterday's up. He's like, but it's going to be tomorrow's down. He's like, so what's holding you up today? He's like, could very well be holding you down tomorrow. And he's like, that's what meds do. He's like, they don't ever let you experience any radical emotion, you know, any intense emotion. He's like, so you can't experience sadness. Yeah, he's like, to that deep, depressed level. He's like, but also you can't experience happiness and joy. He's like, so then... In turn, he's like, you build up a tolerance for the joy that you do, the residual joy hanging out. He's like, and it starts to become depression over a while. He's like, so you keep stacking it on. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> and the more he talked, the more it just made sense. And it was, it was like he was talking about my life uh, over the last couple of years of being on these meds. And I was like, I'm done. And uh, I went to the doctor the following week and I was like, I want off these meds. And they're like, okay, well, over the next six to 12 months, we're going to try to wean you off them, but I really don't. Uh, think it's a good thing. I was like, I don't have six, 12 months. I went off of them now and talked to my psychologist and they were saying kind of the same thing. And I was like, you know what? I'm done. And uh, I went cold turkey. I don't necessarily recommend that to anybody, but I will say I never noticed a side effect of that. I have different theories on that, but I say definitely do it the safest route. But I was just, I had reached that point. I, like, I can't keep doing this. And like I say, learning the truth of how the meds work, I thought was just taking the, the, the doctor's word of this is what you need. And I went on. And then once it finally clicked, it's like, this is never going to cure me. And that's what I was looking for. I want to feel good. Just naturally. It's like, I'm not going to be on these forever. And the fact that this is eating my body up, it just 
triggered something was I'm done with that. It's time to find something else. You know, I, I, Bear had shown me just enough of a glimpse of hope that stacked on all those other moments was okay, there's there's something inside I can do something about this. You know, we have this natural ability inside of us to to um manifest and control our, you know, our destiny, so to speak. And it's like I'm going on. I'm giving it a shot. So the body can heal itself. We just gotta figure out how. So this chief kind of like showed you that there was another way, and that was the beginning of you healing and going a natural way to deal with your depression and suicidal thoughts. Yeah, yeah. So he um, he cracked the door open just enough, and again, I love because uh, often because uh, things I'm piecing together that I had just kind of overlooked. Um, the very first class I took with him, I went in still kind of skeptical because this was like, so, well, um, it all sounds great, but it's way too easy. There's no way, you know, that these meds wouldn't exist if we could do this ourselves, you know, that whole thing. So there was still a huge skeptic in me, um, but there was just this little glimmer of hope. And when I went into that first training he was doing, there was a guy there who came, uh, there was actually an, or- uh, there were two Southern Baptist ministers in there, one of whom he had already converted, had spent enough time with there that she was very open to stuff now she's like he made a believer in me and then another one had come to actually debating and tear him apart in front of all of us and then there was this guy with a can't remember his actual background but he was something um in the scientific like engineering space i don't remember exactly what it was but he came with the same thing because his wife had heard about the course and was all into it and he came to show her that it was all a fraud so most of that course was actually a debate between those two and Bear. And just seeing, for one, just the way he carried himself, like he never got emotional about it. He was just very graceful about everything. And it was like he was prepared for it. He, um, But he had said, he's like, I've been in this, you know, he's like, I've been around this my whole life. He's like, so I'm used to it. He's like, it's fine. He's like, this is why I was put on this planet. He's like, to help raise awareness. He's like, I can't, he's like, I can't be mad at anyone for, uh, for, you know, the experiences they've had in life. Um, so in NLP, there are uh, 14 presuppositions, and they're kind of like our, our guide. And the first one is respect the other person's model of the world. So it doesn't make them right, it doesn't make them wrong, it doesn't make you right, it doesn't make you wrong. It's just their model of the world, and you want them to respect yours and respect theirs in return. And he he lived that. Um, I never heard him say it, but you know, that's, that's exactly what he modeled. And so I would get to watch these debates. And so any skepticism I had and at the time I was just I was that type of person like I wanted to go in I wanted to tear it apart I wanted to like push buttons it didn't matter if I agreed with it or not I just loved debating at the time and uh, because it came from this desire to like prove my worth prove you know how smart I was or whatever and just get acceptance you know that like I'd learned it throughout school like if I could outwit somebody I got a, a little bit of respect from others it was momentary and it was fake but but that's you know like say that was the belief pattern I had running. So I'd gone there myself, wanted to like poke holes in it and look for why it didn't work. And instead, I got to watch these two people who were way more um, prepared to uh, to poke holes in it than I was. And I watched them just those beliefs dissolve in them. Like, this is amazing, you know. And start start getting on board with it in a day or two uh, out of this four day training. And so getting to sit on the sidelines and not be mostly connected in this heated debate or anything else and, and not even heated debate like the bear was very chill it's like he was in meditation the whole time but um 
being able to see that from the sidelines and not get invested in the debate and just be able to watch from the outside split my head wide open and remove the critical faculty and okay there's got to be something here and if it's possible for somebody it's possible for everybody and if it's possible for everybody that includes me as well there's got to be some hope and so yeah it really um fired me up into that i went through uh, when i did go from there i had reached out to a um, naturopath that i had met along that journey actually uh, from someone in that uh that was in that class because so i went to her and i was like i'm coming off of these i want you to help me you know, go through the detox or whatever so she gave me some different supplements and things that she said would help flush it out but i don't want to throw that in but i did go cold turkey and i said i never actually noticed anything Except for after like a week or so later, I noticed a lot more clarity and some more energy come in, but no negative side effects to the point that I actually thought, well, maybe I was on placebo or something. But that's before I learned actually the truth about placebos. So, but it was, uh, you know, it was very beyond eye opening for me, as closed off as I was at the time. It got really shifted almost kind of overnight. It was, and I had a long way to go, a lot of unlearning to do from old habits, old beliefs, old teachings. But it really you know, sparked that fire, got any, uh, got some fuel back on it right before it probably dwindled out for good. We are coming up on the uh, top of the hour. Kip, I, I think that's great what you were just saying about having to like relearn, you know, and unprogram yourself because there are so many people out there that we have been taught to trust the medical system, that this is what we have to do. And you said, no, I'm I'm not going to go that route. And you're looking at it and you're going, oh, you know, I'm not really sure about this. You know, it seems kind of woo-woo to me, you know, but you were willing to open up and to take a look at that. And I, I love that you're sharing that with the audience because I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who might be dealing with the same thing and they're just kind of like, oh, that's woo-woo, you know, I don't know about it. But to hear you say it might help them and encourage them to go and look at other ways of dealing with their issues. So we are at the top of the hour. Uh, Kip, if you could please just give us some closing words of encouragement and then let it, let the listening audience know where you could find you. I'd appreciate that. Yeah, I'd say um, probably one of the most profound things I've learned. Um, well, my journey into NLP and you know, brought me into, like I said, those uh, 14 presuppositions. And one of the most impactful ones was the idea of, you know, respect the other person's model world. Um, and then there were um, two others that uh, just I drill into my kids all the time, <laughs> my um, my clients and students, and I constantly remind myself of as well. And one other is, you know, there are no unresourceful people. It's only unresourceful states. And, you know, what that means is we all have everything within us that we need to get on the journey. You know, not, things might not happen overnight, but it's like we know enough, we have enough in us to be able to get on the journey, to get where we want to be. And the only thing holding us back is the unresourceful state, you know, the, the labels we take on, like I'm depressed, I'm too old, I'm too young, I'm too, you know, fat, I'm too thin, I'm too done, whatever. And then the, um, the other one is actually uh, my favorite out of all of them. And it simply says, there's no failure, there's only feedback. And, you know, for, say for well over two decades I labeled myself as a failure and I saw everything as a failure, everything as a loss. It was either win or lose and that was it. And when I learned this I was like, <laughs> again, 
goosebumps every time I really think about it and connect to it. That is simply, all of that stuff is simply just feedback. Um, you know, the most successful people in the world, they all say failure is not the opposite of success. It's a stepping stone to it. And like you said, you know, probably some people listening that are, was just like me when I first heard it. I was like, that's a load of crap. Um, but the more I started thinking about it, the more I started looking at it and just beginning to open up to the idea it could be true, uh, the more things began to change and change exponentially. And then the more I took it on and took a belief and ownership of it, then you know, the whole world changed. And you know, when we were kids, we played that game hot and cold. You know, your, your parents or your friends would pick a spot out that they want to guide you to. And if you step closer to it, you're getting warmer. You step the other direction, you're getting cooler. Well, as they were saying, you know, oh, you're getting colder, you're getting colder. Oh, now you're back to warm. Like, we didn't take that personally. We just, it was feedback. We took it and we adjusted course. But somewhere along the line, you know, through as we spend more time in the school system, we're getting beat up, you know, by picked on by bullies or, you know, um, teachers are riding us or, you know, parents are doing whatever, whatever it is. And all the stuff from social media and everything coming in to us are not good enough. We take this then we start taking it personal and to where we take that feedback and we turn it into a failure and then we take that failure and put a label on ourselves. So if uh, anyone can just remember anything out of that, so take, take that. Just There's no failure. There's only feedback. I like that. If, you know, if you're doing something that's not working, just adjust course. And so many times it can just be a little 1%, 2% correction and it'll get you on track. And so many times I've been on the right track, just in the wrong direction. And um, instead of throwing the whole thing out, it's finally, you know, take the feedback and, and course correct. As far as finding me, uh, I'm, you know, all over uh, Facebook, just Brooks Empowerment Academy. That's also the website, brooksempowermentacademy.com. And then, you know, to find me individually, Kip Brooks, K-I-P-B-R-O-O-K-S. So on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram as well. So, yeah, anybody have any questions or anything about any of this, feel free to reach out to me at any time. I'm here to help as much as I'm able to. So, Kip, you can help anybody no matter where they are in the world? I wish I could say yes, but quite, uh, just to be frank and blunt, um, not everybody's ready for it. A lot of people think they want help, but they actually, there's too much secondary gain from their story and there's something there. So, I have people approach me sometimes, and that's where they're at. Like, they think they want help. They're on a teetering point. But luckily, we're able to decide really quick. Is, is there a secondary gain of keeping you stuck? And then sometimes when they're aware of it, then uh, they're able to release it. Other times, there's um, there's some self-reflection and self-work they need to do to move towards that point. But anyone who is truly ready and open to it, yeah, this stuff works. And it's not me doing it. Let's say it's just the tool, and it's them doing the work in their, uh, in their own mind. And that's the thing, like at some point in life, we made the decision to believe this certain limiting thing about ourselves or, you know, take ownership of living in this state that's not, you know, not, um, not enhancing our lives. But just like we came to terms to a point where we made that decision, we can also go back to that and actually um, take the learnings from it. And then we can just correct that belief. Uh, but, the, you know, the person has to be truly ready for it. It's much simpler right. than, than most people ever <laughs> realize. Not nearly as complex as we tend to think, especially here in the States. Uh, we were made to believe everything is complex. Yeah, the unconscious mind is just a toddler. It's literally, it operates like a four or five-year-old would. And, you know, the challenging thing about that is a lot of stuff that gets in, a lot of beliefs get programmed and aren't serving us. 
But the beautiful thing about that is, is it's really easy to outsmart a four or five year old at any game. So once you know the rules of how it plays, it's really easy to entice that toddler to come along with you. So right. do what you want to do, uh, do what's serving. I, I think I, I worded that wrong. What I was saying is that you can work with anybody in the world. They don't have to actually live in your state to for you to go oh, ahead yeah. and work with them. Yeah. Okay. Um, and honestly, um, actually, I used to only do um, one-on-ones in person when I first got into this. But then started um, Game the Universe, providing me with a couple of situations where the only way I could help a person was over the phone, uh, long distance. And um, uh, what I started noticing is actually when someone is in their own space, and we're doing it, you know, over a Zoom call or something like that. Um, they're actually able to connect to the process better because they're just a little more comfortable. You know, they're in their their territory. They're able to set up their own space uh, that they're comfortable in, and and it has a secondary benefit on top of that as well. Besides being able to be comfortable instead of being in you know my office or something with this weird guy they don't know, uh, you know, the stranger. They uh, they're in their space, and then also. They come to my office or, you know, a seminar room or something. That's a clean slate. They've never been there before. You know, they can, however they behave there is different than they behave anywhere else. Well, in our home, you know, that's where we've been. Um, our house has seen our, our best and our worst sides, typically, or pretty close to it. So being able to go through the release process and then discover the, the real them, kind of welcome it into the world, so to speak, when that happens in front of house and actually creates a new um, a new way of being in that environment. So I, I noticed it actually set them up even more so for success because there was a study done uh, a few years ago and less than 10% of people who go into a seminar and have this life-changing experience, less than 10% carry it out fully outside of that seminar room for you know more than a couple of weeks. That's because in their the environment outside of there, they're not set up. They didn't have a plan for for the new way of living. So it's real easy to fall back in those habits. So when I started doing these, doing this work virtually where they were in their space, noticed that was able to kind of reset. So it was like working with them as well as their environment all in one fell shot. Um, and it just helped them take ownership of, you know, and sort of make a declaration without making one um, verbally, but make a declaration of this is how I am now and this is how the environment is for me. Well, Kip, we're at the top of the hour. Thank you so much for being on the show. You've been listening to It's Your Life. I've been your host, Joyce Wheeler. I have been talking with Kip Brooks of Brooks Empowerment Academy. Again, Kip, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a huge honor. And thank you to everybody listening. You guys are great. Thank you for listening and enjoy the rest of your day. This has been a production of Natural Bliss Podcast for a better quality of life.